I don't plan to retire. I am very fortunate to love my work enough that I would be very, very happy and fulfilled, continuing to do it until my dying day. But if I did want to retire, I would probably look into living on a cruise ship. I remember hearing about this story initially many, many years ago. And when I went to search for evidence of it, I was fairly certain it would turn out to be an urban legend, as awesome things tend to do. According to Snopes.com, though, which I highly recommend, by the way, especially right now, in this time of easily shared myth and propaganda, according to Snopes, it's a true story. A woman named B. Muller started living on Cunard's Queen Elizabeth II in the year 2000. It cost her about $5,000 a month, and though her room was only a 10-foot by 10-foot windowless cabin with barely enough floor space for a bed, radio, television, and a tiny closet-sized bathroom, she also had full-time maid services, massive dining rooms, 24-7 on-call doctors, a full medical center, a large variety of daily entertainment options, frequent landside visits, swimming pools, a workout room, washers and dryers, free necessities like toothbrushes and razors, clean sheets and towels every day, access to computers, a beauty salon, and most important, to be Muller at least, dancing and frequent games of bridge. B died in 2013, and she was apparently not the first long-timer aboard that particular ship. Another woman named Claire Macbeth spent 14 years living on the Queen Elizabeth II. Now, there have been several assessments done over the years of the costs involved in the cruise ship versus assisted living comparison. And most experts seem to agree that what you're probably looking at here to get that comparison where the costs associated with both are similar is the comparison between a very high-end assisted living facility situation and the lowest possible tier of cruise ship living. But that said, it is still an interesting option to consider, and even more so when you think about how many people you'd have the opportunity to meet and how many places you'd have the opportunity to go and visit, all while being coddled and catered to the way cruise ship employees tend to do. There are worse ways to spend your final days than being a tourist on a cruise ship. And that's actually what I want to talk about today. Not cruise ships, not death, but tourism. And how the traditional model of tourism is being brazenly and very rapidly upset. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode is brought to you by HostGator. If you want to help support the show while also getting amazing hosting service at 30 to 45% off, go to hostgator.com slash LKT. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. 
Going to audibletrial.com slash LKT will net you a free month of Audible and a free audiobook. And you can pick up one of my books or you can stay tuned at the end of the episode for a book recommendation from me. Big thanks to them and thank you for supporting this podcast. All right, let's get back to talking tourism. The article I want to start from today is from The Guardian. And it's entitled, From Berlin to Barcelona, Will Airbnb Ruin Our Most Loved Cities? There is a lot covered in this article, and there's a lot of different concerns, some of which I will address and some of which I will not. So I definitely recommend going and checking out the article if you want the full picture, including in directions that I don't go in this particular episode. But the crux, the the core of the argument being made here, of the discussion being had here, is that Airbnb is dramatically changing and warping and distorting in some ways the way the tourism industry works in a bunch of different cities. And in particular, covered in this article, are cities that are traditional tourist hubs. And these places now are being dramatically and very, very quickly changed. These places have changed over the years. They're not the same, like Paris isn't the same Paris that it was a hundred years ago, but the change traditionally has been very slow, or at least has seemed to be slow by comparison. Whereas today, the disrupting effect of a company like Airbnb has required massive shifts and adjustments and evolutions by a lot of different entities. And that is causing a decent amount of panic for those entities. To make sure that we are on the same page when we're having this discussion, let's talk for a moment about what it means to be a tourist, what it means when we say tourism. The word comes from the Old English word Turian, which means to turn on a lathe. And it was first used in the 18th century to discuss or to describe somebody who we might consider to be a tourist today. There are a bunch of differentiators out there that different people and different groups over the years have used, different travel organizations and different dictionaries and encyclopedias. Some of them it's based on the time frame that you spend in a different place outside of where you live and conduct your day-to-day business. Sometimes it's whether you're going there for pleasure or for work or for some other purpose. The modern iteration and something that seems to encompass almost all of the other descriptors, though, is that last one. That typically, travel could be for anything, but typically it's something purposeful. Whereas tourism, you are going surely to enjoy yourself. You're going there for pleasure and for nothing else. You're not working, probably. You're not going there to meet with somebody. You're going there to see a place, to be in a place, to take a tour of the place. And for most of history, This type of travel was limited completely to the wealthy, to the upper crust of society. And at the time, that primarily meant royalty and their ilk. But in the Middle Ages, pilgrimages became popular in many different religions. Uh, Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam in particular pushed a lot of people outside of their homes, had them walking holy paths to see relics and things of that nature. And that changed the habits and attitudes of a lot of people because it exposed them to new ideas, it exposed them to new lands, new places, new foods, 
and it also led to the development of certain paths and roads, different infrastructure that you need for these types of treks, hostels, places to stay, restaurants and guides that cater to the visiting pilgrim. And this continued for a great long while. Pilgrimages made up the bulk of the travel that was occurring around Europe in particular. But the modern version, or what we would probably consider to be the modern version of tourism, started with the so-called Grand Tour, capital G, capital T, Grand Tour. And this was kind of a gap year for wealthy Europeans, during which they would travel the continent and experience the history of Europe. So the art, the language, the people, the great sites, the different schools, they would go out and kind of become a man because it was primarily men that were doing this. It was young men from wealthy families traveling around the continent so that they could see the glories of Western civilization. So you can imagine this served multiple purposes. It was something that got them out of the house and got them exposed to some new ideas, but it was also something that reinforced the superiority of Western civilization in the minds of the future leaders of Western civilization. And this grand tour concept and practice flourished for about 200 years, from the mid-17th century until the mid-19th century. And over the years, the method and mechanism of travel changed. There were tour guides that set up shop, looking out for these wealthy families so that they would take them around to make sure that their children were safe. Eventually, railroads replaced wagons. Eventually, steamships replaced sailboats. And eventually, all of this technology and the infrastructure around it, these pre-built tour systems, became cheap enough that it became accessible to a larger percentage of the population. And so suddenly, it wasn't just the incredibly wealthy and the royalty who were doing this kind of gap year. It was maybe the middle class as well. And at the time, the, the middle class referred typically to the people who owned the industry, who owned the machines during the Industrial Revolution. And so there were the people who worked in the factories, and then there was the factory owners. And these people were not wealthy in the way that their king or a duke or a cousin of the duke was wealthy, but they were wealthy in the sense that they owned the means of production. And so this growing middle class was suddenly able to send their kids out into the world as well to get that type of education and to make those types of connections. So even then, once the practice of tourism became more accessible, it was still highly relegated to the upper crust of society. And to this day, the term tourist is often used as a pejorative. It's often an insult, or it's a way to speak down about somebody to call them a tourist. Because the implication is that these are people who are taking a very shallow interest in the local culture and the city and the people. And so they're there. Yeah, they're technically in this place, technically exposed to these new things. But they're also kind of privileged youths, people who are visiting and come from moneyed backgrounds. And as a result, they're not really experiencing these places. They're experiencing like a whitewashed, gilded version of what it actually is to be in these places. And this is something that's sometimes the case. You, you look at politicians who say, yeah, I've traveled the world, but their only experience of the world outside of their home country is staying in five-star hotels. Is that really experiencing the world? 
If you stay at the Taj Mahal, are you really experiencing India? It's questionable. I mean, there's arguments to be made in both directions, but I think that's the implication that very often, and, and still to this day, the word tourist has, that it's somebody who's going there to take a photo with the Eiffel Tower, to buy the postcard, to buy the, the Eiffel Tower keychain, and then to go home and talk about how much they love France. When in reality, what they've experienced is a almost theme park-like version of the place that they have visited. And this is absolutely not always the case, but this is kind of the experience of a location that we are incentivized to have when we visit a new location. It's much easier to structure a tourist industry around a set of systems and safe and predictable experiences and vendors and essentially to build a version of real life that is much more consumable and something that's much easier to display and that paints a really great picture of your home, of your city, of your country, of your culture to people who are visiting it for the first time. And so it makes perfect sense for the people who are creating this kind of whitewashed reality for consumption. But it also makes sense for the people who are coming to consume it because it's a much better version in a lot of ways, uh, if you're just going there to enjoy yourself, than the reality. Because the reality, any place you go, is going to be flawed. It's going to have a lot of uncomfortable gray tones when what you're really wanting is like a very stark black and white picture of the way things are. But it's because of this that the word tourist is a little bit tainted, whereas the word traveler tends to have very positive connotations. Traveler tends to refer to somebody who is going someplace with a purpose. They're going to work, or they're going to visit family. They're going just to explore, but they're going to explore the culture. They're trying to involve themselves with the local community. These two words are very often used interchangeably, but the connotation so very often holds multitudes of meaning, and it's worth being aware of that. Now, travel and tourism can be local or it can be international. You can, in a way, be a tourist in your own city. You can take the tour bus, you can go to the famous landmark that everybody who comes from out of town visits. You can indulge in that type of lifestyle. It'll probably cost you a bit more than the places outside of the tourist area, outside of the tourist track that they lead you down. But you can absolutely do it, and, and a lot of people tend to enjoy that experience because it's a different view of a familiar place. But you can also travel internationally, and a lot of the tourism, when we talk about the numbers and statistics around the tourism industry, typically what we're referring to is international tourism. And when we talk about the tourism industry, it's important to recognize that we don't just mean hotels or hotels and restaurants. We're talking about everything that goes into the tourist's experience in a place that they visit. And so it's not just hotels, it's not just restaurants, it's also their subway tickets, it's their croissant that they purchase at the coffee shop, it's the entry fee into a museum. It's the ticket that they get on their rental car. There are as many potential sources of expense as there is for a person living in their own hometown. And so naturally, the tourism industry tends to be substantial. It is a person living a typically augmented version of their life in another city. And so they tend to spend a bit more than they might otherwise. 
this money adds up and it makes up a huge percentage of some economies around the world. It also accounts for 30% of all services that are provided globally, the international tourism industry, and 6% of all exported goods and services are the result of the tourism industry. In 2015, the tourism industry grew by 4.3%. That means 1.133 billion international tourist arrivals worldwide. It is a massive number, particularly when people are as scared as they are right now. And France is the most popular destination of all destinations on the planet for the tourism industry, but the U.S. makes substantially more money from the tourism industry. I think the U.S. is second after France in terms of popularity, but the U.S. makes about three times more as the next top earner, which is Spain. So the U.S. makes a lot more money per tourist than any other country. And Chinese citizens currently spend the most visiting other countries. I think they are about double the next top spender in the tourism economy. So that's the playing field in which this game is taking place, this game between the traditional tourism industry and the punk kids like Airbnb that are strutting in and saying, this doesn't make sense to me, and then changing everything without asking anybody if they're okay with that. And part of Airbnb's popularity has to do with the fact that they are better serving the needs of a certain subset of the tourists that are currently traveling internationally and nationally around the world. There are a lot of new priorities that simply are not being served by much of the traditional tourism industry. And these are priorities that young people are absolutely following with a passion and trying to acquire. But older people are as well, as tends to happen. The, the young kids kind of help define a certain aspect of culture, and then everybody else catches up and says, hey, that's kind of cool. I enjoy that as well. And so what we're seeing is that young people are constantly on the lookout for authenticity and unique experiences. And so these are things that they will pay more for, and they will go out of their way to accomplish and acquire, because having the same as everybody else has become very, very cheap. Mass-produced goods and experiences are a dime a dozen for this generation. And so going out and doing something that is authentic and unique in that not everybody is going to this place and having the exact cookie-cutter cutout same experience as everybody else, that is something that they are attracted to. And there's also the desire to find photogenic locations and adventures. And that makes perfect sense if you look at what's happening in the social media and online world in general. It's becoming more visual. It's something that is much more focused on photography and imagery and video above and beyond just text. And so whereas before somebody might write up a travel log, these days the number of visual travel logs are it's, it's massive in, on scale. You look at Instagram, you look at Facebook, you look at YouTube, you look at Vine, you look at Snapchat. These are all services that allow people to kind of humble brag about whatever it is that they're doing all the time. And so when you go and travel, part of the reason that you're doing it, chances are, is to show other people that you've done this thing, to associate yourself with this place or experience. And that means that you want to get a photo that nobody else has. You want to 
show a photo of the room that you're staying in that shows that, oh, look, this is my lifestyle. This is a place that accurately reflects my taste in some way. We are defining ourselves through these stories and through this media that we share. And so it makes sense that our travel experiences would prioritize uniqueness, authenticity, and photogenic locations and experiences. And Airbnb tends to meet these needs. It's also incredibly intuitive. It's easy to use. It's mobile first. So it's really, really easy for people who are obsessed with their phones and always on their phones. It's typically cheaper. It allows you to stay in parts of town that have not been completely dominated and reshaped by the traditional tourism industry. So it feels more legit, but it's also something that's a little bit more cozy, particularly if you don't like the hotel vibe. And this is what the traditional tourism industry is fighting against, because these are needs that it is no doubt aware of, but is not as incentivized to cater to, because changing that much infrastructure is difficult, and changing that much infrastructure that is not centrally owned or controlled, even more so. Whereas Airbnb, it's a bunch of different people involved on the platform. But because they are all part of this one centralized thing, you can access a bunch of unique experiences and places through one user interface. And that's something that the traditional tourism industry cannot do, or at least not easily or very often. Now, the concerns that arise when a company like Airbnb enters a new city, they're legitimate concerns. Some of the biggest and most often written about concerns include the fact that Airbnb very often operates a little bit outside of the law that everybody else operates in accordance with. There's a lot of regulations and taxes and costs and limitations that hotels have to abide by. And Airbnb either doesn't or makes it very, very difficult when a politician or competitor calls them out on it and draws everybody through endless litigation. So they kind of drag their feet and make everybody cough up a great deal of money to try to force them to abide by these laws or taxes or regulations. They've got a substantial number of lobbyists, both grassroots and paid for. And so they, they've basically, they come into a new place and they stomp around and start changing things. And they provide services that are similar to what's happening but different enough that they can argue that they don't have to abide by the same rules as everybody else. On top of that, and this is something that's covered a great deal in the article that we're talking about today, is that Airbnb allows people to rent out their homes away from the center of traditional tourism. And so what that means is that in Barcelona in 2009, which is when Airbnb arrived, 80% of tourists stayed at hotels or bed and breakfasts in Old Town. Today, only, what, seven years later, almost 70% of tourists stay outside of Old Town. And so when you move people away from one district, that means that all of the businesses that used to have this reliable income no longer have it. And on top of that, the businesses and the infrastructure in these other parts of town that were not built to deal with this surge of visitors all the time, foreign visitors too, and there's different concerns for that, they are suddenly dealing with this influx. And so as a result, infrastructure is being strained and businesses are either dying from the lack of tourist dollars or 
suddenly experiencing an influx of tourist dollars and therefore changing perhaps the way that they operate, which might anger the locals because they are no longer the ones being catered to. And this also upsets this existing ecosystem. The hotels and the restaurants and the tourist attractions that were located in this one part of town where you would go and stay at this hotel and they would give you a discount to go see this show or to get this tour or to go to this restaurant, that ecosystem is being pulled apart and is collapsing under its own weight because it's a great big thing that requires a great deal of traffic to upkeep and that traffic is now being funneled elsewhere. It's being guided to a different part of town that isn't necessarily capable of supporting and sustaining that type of traffic, at least not yet. And then the government, of course, is also very upset about this because it makes it very difficult for them to regulate things in terms of, one, ensuring that people stay safe and are not being taken advantage of by opportunistic people renting out apartments through Airbnb, for example. But it also doesn't allow them to collect the same types of taxes and tariffs. So whereas before they had a certain amount of predictable revenue that was coming in to the state from the tourism industry, now it's becoming increasingly difficult for them to collect that because this new player in the field, Airbnb, operates differently enough that very often, by the letter of the law, they don't have to pay those taxes, or at least not the same taxes. And so the government, the, the bureaucracy, is struggling to catch up to try to figure out how they can apply these fees without seeming like the bad guys. And this is what it looks like when a disruptive company comes into an old and established industry. We see this over and over these days. This is something that happens a lot more than you might think. We see this happening with Uber right now for many different types of mass transit, but in particular taxi services. We saw this happening ages ago with Craigslist when it disrupted one of the major income streams for newspapers, which was the classified section. And even though this happens over and over again, the industries that suffer from these disruptors always seem to be very surprised when it happens to them. And unfortunately, they tend to be caught with their pants around their ankles too, completely unprepared to deal with it. And then invariably, we have the debate and this debate is something that happens each and every time this happens as well. And very typically, you jump to one side of the argument or the other, depending on who you are. If you're part of that existing traditional infrastructure, then these new players coming into the field are the worst. They are a plague of locusts that are coming in to take everything and destroy you. So if you are a taxicab driver or a taxicab company, Uber is the worst thing that ever happened to you. Whereas if you're just a normal everyday person who finds Uber to be useful, it's not just not the end of the world, it's actually something that has come in and liberated you from this horrible, uncomfortable, imperfect thing that existed in your life before, which is trying to use the taxi services. The same is absolutely true with Airbnb. If you are operating a hotel chain or managing a hotel or somehow involved in that traditional tourism infrastructure, Airbnb is clearly a villain. Whereas if you are somebody who uses Airbnb as a customer or a part of the newly developing, cobbled together freelancer style tourism economy that's emerging around this, like a freelance tour guide, for example, then it's amazing. It's something that eliminated a lot of the old problems that existed within the old system. And so it's clearly a good thing. It's actually really easy 
to make arguments both for and against Airbnb. On the anti-Airbnb side, you can say that they aren't playing by the same rules as everybody else, which gives them an unfair advantage. They're intentionally tangling the legal system, which forces new actions, new legal actions in each country, in some cases in each state, region, or city, so that massive action and resources are required to counter them. They're destroying hard-built and traditional local infrastructure to make money for their non-local masters. They're like sending money away back to Silicon Valley. People are buying up local housing to rent out on Airbnb. So some entrepreneurial people are coming in and buying up a lot of the local apartments and, and other housing and then renting them out on Airbnb rather than making them available for locals to rent. And that causes the rent prices to go sky high. And it also demolishes the local real estate market, makes it very difficult to find an affordable home. And it also brings a constant flood of strangers, both into new parts of town that are not capable of sustaining that kind of traffic, but also into apartment buildings where people who are renting apartments there do not expect to have all of these strangers coming through their secure space all the time. These people who may or may not be criminals having greater access to their secured lives. But on the pro-Airbnb side, you could argue that Airbnb creates a ton of new opportunities by connecting someone with a resource and someone else who wants that resource, and the fee to make that connection is actually quite minimal, all things considered, particularly compared to the fees associated with a more traditional model of acquiring that resource or renting out such a resource. They create additional revenue stream opportunities for people who desperately need them, particularly during difficult economic times in cities where you require a great deal of money to sustain yourself. They bring new people into areas that otherwise wouldn't benefit from those tourism dollars. They give tourists the opportunity to get a more unique, authentic experience because they're staying where locals actually live rather than that whitewashed tourism path that most people are funneled down. And so it could be argued that you actually get to experience the real culture and real people as opposed to just going and staying at a five-star hotel and eating at a McDonald's when you're in India. And it gives freelancers and other smaller entities the chance to compete with larger, more established players. Again, this goes back to everything from food vendors to tour guides, the freelance economy and small business economy that is popping up around the Airbnb economy is insane. And it's something that could never have happened if those old established players continued to have absolute power. Whichever way you might lean, there are efforts in your town or probably somewhere nearby to bring Airbnb in line with their competitors. In some cases, this means reducing the costs and limitations on hotels and other infrastructure of that sort, other competitors. More frequently, it means imposing additional fees, fines, and taxes on Airbnb or on the hosts that use the service. In some cases, this means limiting the number of nights a year that you can rent out your space. And if you go above that cap, you have to pay a certain additional fee. But nothing uniform and universal has emerged yet. And so this is definitely a discussion that rages on and a discussion that once we have some results, will no doubt help redefine what it means to be a tourist. And these decisions really are not being made just in the context of tourism. These are 
decisions that reflect and perhaps even influence other decisions that are being made in other spheres as well. They are decisions about whether we should respect and support and defend the infrastructure that we've already built or celebrate the arrival of the barbarians at the gate. Rather than just waiting for them to break down our walls, maybe we invite them in and see what they have to offer. The answer isn't always straightforward because some of these barbarians don't know what the hell they're doing, and they are vaguely sociopathic entities that are trying to make a buck and have no trouble hurting a lot of people in order to do that. And this is a problem that I talk and write a lot about, that when a new technology or way of doing things arrives, the people who are currently involved with the dominant technology that is being usurped or might be usurped, they are the ones that tend to suffer, even if they don't have a horse in the race, even if they are not the people in charge losing the shirt off their backs, the employees of all of these entities definitely suffer. The telephone put all of the telegraph operators out of work, and the resulting world was better for everyone, I would argue, with the telephone in it, but it did suck, at least initially, for those telegraph operators. And so the question is, is Airbnb a telephone? Or is it something that will kill off the telegraph and then leave us with something worse? something that's more scattered and less helpful, rather than giving us something better to replace what it's destroyed. You could absolutely ask this exact same question of Uber, of Bitcoin, of ebooks, of co-working spaces, of any new company or new service or product that is usurping an established existing player. Part of what makes this decision for a lot of people right now, I think, is the desire to defend the familiar, or to embrace the new, depending on which side you're on, what you lean toward typically. A dogmatic propensity for either side, 100% of the time, I think is probably the wrong way to go. But where do you draw the line? That's the question. That's the difficult thing to ascertain, particularly if you're not an expert in the different fields that are being demolished by those barbarians at the gate. And the other question is, how do you actually stop those barbarians if you do want to halt their forward movement? How do you prevent them from just tearing down the walls? How do you prevent them from overcoming what existed before and burning everything to the ground if you do decide that this is not a useful thing that's coming in and destroying everything in its path? I haven't seen this done well, frankly. There are plenty of examples of stopgap solutions, but few that seem to work very often. And unfortunately, in many cases, simply crushing these new entrants that are emerging in a field and stomping around and trying to change things only comes across as blind conservatism. As destructive and sociopathic as some of these new usurpers might be, just coming in and quashing them and saying, well, we're older, so we get to do that, only reinforces the desire in many people to break down those existing walls. There's a lot of potential, I think, for a more Hindu-inspired method of dealing with outside ideologies, and that is to essentially hug them to death. When Hinduism encounters other religions with other gods and prophets, it kind of shrugs its ephemeral shoulders and says, cool, welcome to the club. 
You say there's a guy named Jesus who can work miracles? Great. He's part of our religion now. A gentleman named Muhammad, you say? Wonderful. He sounds great. He's in the club too. That's Hinduism. And some governments and more established tourism-related industries have started to do something kind of like this in response to the increasingly strong new players in the tourism economy, with very mixed results. Some taxicab companies, for instance, have introduced or improved existing mobile phone apps, along with offering up more transparent information about their drivers and how much a trip will cost and things of that nature. And so those existing players that are willing to adopt some of these new technologies and methodologies of these companies, like Uber, that want to replace them, they have seen some benefits and they've seen some of their numbers bounce back a little bit. Could the same work for other forms of mass transit or for networks of hotels and hostels, maybe for tour companies and museums and other attractions? Maybe they could take something, some of that magic pixie dust of what Airbnb is doing so well, and apply it to their own existing network and infrastructure to try to revitalize it, to try to take back some of those tourist dollars and that goodwill that Airbnb has captured by usurping so much of what they've done. I have no idea, but I think it would be a better solution than simply complaining that it's not fair how the world keeps changing. Honestly, I think the combination could be even more successful than the conservative traditional methods or the newer methods by themselves. I don't really want to retire, but I could personally see myself spending a great deal of time living on a cruise ship if there was an Airbnb-like interface that would allow me to do so. This episode of Let's Know Things has been brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've been using for years. I once used a bunch of different companies and eventually consolidated to HostGator because they have, in my opinion, the best service, the best customer service, which is remarkable for a hosting company, very easy to get in contact with, and the different plans that they offer are quite remarkable as well. The Hatchling plan starts at just under $3 a month, so it's an incredibly affordable way to get started if you are planning on starting up a business or building a website for an existing business, starting a blog, sharing a bunch of vacation photos, whatever it happens to be. They are a wonderful option if that is something that you are interested in doing. You can sign up for HostGator and get some amazing hosting service for yourself while also helping out Let's Know Things by going to HostGator.com slash LKT, just the initials of the show. This episode is also sponsored by Audible. Audible has been a godsend for me as somebody who road trips all the time. It is so much fun having an audiobook playing in the background while I am making those long drives. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, then you will get a free month of Audible and a free audiobook. And I have a bunch of my books up on Audible, so you can listen to me reading my books to you if you like. But I'd also like to recommend a book entitled Super Intelligence, subtitle Paths, Dangers, Strategies. And this book is by Nick Bostrom. It is an incredibly informative and really crazily scary book about artificial intelligence. I think I mentioned this book in a past episode, my episode about AI. The ideas presented here are at times horrifying, 
at times very inspirational and really, really make you look forward to what's coming and what's already here but has not been made widespread yet. But it also makes very, very clear some of the risks that are associated with developing this type of technology. And the rewards are potentially massive, but the risks are things that we need to be considering right now. And this is the type of book that's very dense, it's quite long, but it's also something that you can then divide up into chapters and listen to them as if they are podcast episodes. And so that's a really nice way to take this type of information in, in my opinion. And this book is normally $22 as an audiobook, but you can get it absolutely free if you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT. If you don't enjoy it, you can cancel before the month is up. But if you do enjoy it, and I'm pretty sure you will, then it's something that you can really get into the way that I have. And I will make a new book recommendation each episode so that you will have plenty of ideas of things to listen to and or read. Now again, signing up with these sponsors is something that helps the show, but I do not encourage anybody to sign up for anything that's going to add stress to your life or something that you don't need. You do not need to consume anything to be happy. So do with that information what you will. And so some other ways to support the show, if you're enjoying what I'm doing here, you can share it with a friend, you can leave a review, uh, just stars or a written review or both, ideally up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also contribute directly if you'd like. If you go to letsknowthings.com, you'll find a couple of links so that it's different ways that you can contribute. A buck an episode, more if you like, but a buck an episode would be absolutely amazing. You can also find the show notes of this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com in addition to a form where you can sign up for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which I send out every Monday. It's a collection of interesting links that I found the previous week. Let's Know Things is on Facebook and Instagram, in both cases at Let's Know Things. My YouTube show, Consider This, can be found on YouTube or at considerthis.io. And you can find out more about me and my projects and a full list of all of the books that I've written at colin.io. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.